Hello, Ed. Welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic. And we're very excited today to be at the Goldwater Institute with Matt Beinberg, the Director of Education Policy here at Gold, uh, Goldwater. Thanks, Thanks very much Matt. for having me on, guys. Uh, the topic today is federalism, a topic that, um, Matt, you wrote about uh, recently uh, for uh, publication Real Real Clear Public Affairs. Um, my dad, uh, Robert Robb, also uh, recently wrote an article about infrastructure, mentioning federalism as, as important to, to approaching that as a policy. So um, we're excited today, the to, um, meeting of the minds to talk about federalism. Uh, it's a topic that I teach about uh, in government class. Many of our listeners probably learned about it uh, in school something that was very important to the framers of the Constitution, yet um, something that seems to have gone out of fashion in today's politics. So your article, Matt, was was titled, uh, It's Time to Reclaim American Federalism. And I'm just going to read a short quote from it, um, and then I have you sort of define it and, and respond. <clears throat> you say, Federalism, in short, is one of the few ways left we can get along as a nation and promote actual diversity in this country. That is, diversity of thought and opinion rather than demanding top-down groupthink. So first question here, what, what is federalism and how do you think it will help us get along better in this country? Sure. Well, federalism is the idea that you know, policies should be made not all in one place you know, by folks in Washington, D.C., but have the individual states be the actors who are actually making policies. So that if Arizona wants to enact one provision, they can do so. If California or New York want to do something different, they can. So very simple, essentially just that separation of power, not just you know the president and, and Congress that people tend to talk about in the Supreme Court all within Washington, but that separation in terms of a national and sort of state level government and essentially saying, we're better off for a number of reasons when those policies are made and debated at the state level rather than all at the national stage. So we're uh, better off in terms of decision making. We're, we're in such a tense and, and polarizing time. How might that, um, reclaiming that, as you say, help us with those divisions as well? Yeah, I mean, we're in sort of a perpetual campaign mode now, right, where everybody, it's its always the most important election of our time, and everybody, you know, is focusing on presidential elections in Congress, and we have this mentality that it's a sort of winner-take-all, the, the future of the country depends on this one single election that's going to now dictate the policy for the whole country, and if you actually let people take different paths, you no longer have everybody all looking to, you know, basically push one way over someone else's and say, again, if, if Wyoming wants to go one route and you know, North Carolina or California want to do something else, I think it's hugely important because it says we don't need to have this constant clash and struggle where we're trying to, you know, dominate or keep someone from dominating our public policy preferences. Would you, Dad, would you see federalism the uh, similar way or would you emphasize different components of it as being important, especially in today's political context. I, I think Matt had a, a great insight uh, about how federalism could uh, allow a uh, diverse um, society, politically divided society, uh, live together uh, more amicably. Um, for me, it's more of a um, constitutional structure, an order of government. 
Uh, and our framers uh, saw a, a sharp division of labor. Uh, the federal government was to be a, a government of limited and enumerated responsibilities, and everything else was to be reserved uh, for the states. Um, that was uh, the essential construct um, from our origins. Uh, and um, we have uh, largely abandoned that. When Matt talks about the need to reclaim it, uh, he is right because it has been lost. I'm kind of pessimistic about the ability to recover it, uh, but uh, I think that uh, we need to constantly remind ourselves of that and to start asking the question, why is this a federal government's job? Public transit is one of my favorite examples. That's largely funded by the federal government. It serves no regional or national purpose. It's a way to get people around uh, a particular community. And it makes no sense to be taxing all of us on a national basis and then redistribute it back uh, based upon the decision of some bureaucrats in Washington as to which public transit projects are worthy of support rather than leaving that in the hands of um, the local government. It also diffuses political accountability. Um, every local government wants public transit, uh, fixed uh, rail public transit, because they don't tax their local residents to pay for it. So the question of whether this is the most economical way to get people around is never asked because the people who are making the decisions to go forward aren't the ones that are paying for it. So I think we, we, we lose a lot. Among the most important things we lose is political accountability. Well, when, speaking of like reclaim, do we ever, do we ever really have this? I mean, do we, was it, was there ever, what was the glory day of this country where we had true federalism? I mean, it seems like if you go back to even the founding era, um, there was always, in your piece, Matt, you, you talked about the origin of this, of the 10th Amendment, uh, that everything that's not explicitly said for the national government should be for the states or for the people. But there's other, you know, part of the Constitution of necessary and proper clause that seems like from the very beginning uh, has been used by the national government to to do things that they see as the national, national interest. And even going to infrastructure, there are probably people that would argue, well, it is a national interest to to rebuild the the whole nation's um, roads and, and bridges and, and to move us closer towards renewables. Um, so so speak to that a little bit. What um, Matt? What? When did we lose it? Did we did we ever have it? And and how how do we go towards re reclaiming it in the specific context here. Yeah, and I'd go back to, you know, as, as Bob said, couching this and understanding it, that this is something that's grounded constitutionally in the fabric of the country, right? This is something that the founders said, when we're setting up this government, we're not just going to say it's a blank slate and you can do anything you want, right? George Washington has monarchical powers to just establish laws and and have this now be be what every state is going to do um, and to say, look, it was clearly set up, the, the framers recognized that when you concentrate power, you're setting up these problems, right? So it's not just, you know, I kind of mentioned with, look, I think today that there's reasons that this helps us kind of go along and get along, but from a just purely, why was it this, the system set up this way? You know, the U.S. Constitution was an incredible innovation, right? This is something that says this is a, a framework of government we're going to do to protect against tyranny, to to 
keep power from being concentrated in one place. And so I do think you saw that um, in American history. And obviously in the 20th century in particular, you saw a, a large movement, you know, things like the New Deal, uh, you know, obviously the Constitution does allow things like regulating interstate commerce, right? There are areas where the, the federal government is supposed to be involved, but then there are clearly areas that the Constitution says nothing about, right? One of those is K-12 education. And so there are areas here which obviously the federal government has over time increased its footprint over. And yet I think the the framers of the Constitution were very deliberate in trying to preserve those spaces and say, look, these are not an issue that is best resolved at the national level as opposed to at the state and local level. And, and Bill, you, you are absolutely correct that from the country's founding, there were um, questions about what was the federal responsibility and what was the state and local responsibility and um, ever uh, larger grasping of authority by the federal government. But the question was always asked. Uh, it, was, it was part of the political conversation. A and I think we lost that as part of our political conversation from two historical events. In the 1980s, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, wanted to make a serious effort at dividing up the responsibilities that the federal government had assumed and saying, okay, these are federal these are state and local. There was a group of Democratic governors led by Arizona Governor Bruce Babbitt who were serious about that and engaged with the Reagan administration in that discussion. So that was an opportunity to, to sort of restore a sense of relative areas of responsibility. Despite an awful lot of progress and an awful lot of work, uh, it didn't come to fruition. I forget exactly what breaking point was, but there was a point at which the Democratic governors wanted this particular thing to be a federal responsibility and Reagan refused. So we lost the opportunity to have a sorting out at that point. Matt uh, mentioned education as something that isn't in the scope of things that would fall to the federal government in a federalist uh, uh, paradigm. Um, and for years and years, the conservative position was, we ought not to have a federal department of education. The federal government ought to get out of that business. I think the closing of the door on federalism occurred during the George W. Bush administration on the issue of education. Because Bush was promoting, at Karl Rove's uh, urging, uh, what became known as big government conservatism, where you quit fighting the size of government, you quit fighting the issue of what's a federal role and a state role, you accept a big, powerful federal government, but you harness it uh, to serve conservative purposes. So on education, the Bush administration didn't push to get the federal government out of it. It increased funding and then tied funding to a regime of accountability uh, and testing. Um, to overcome, as Bush described it, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Well, that was the point at which I think we lost federalism as a salient political uh, point and a point of discussion. Basically, conservatives under Bush abandoned the cause, and it's awfully difficult to get it back, even though I think it's important to keep uh, the ambers alive uh, in hopes that it can 
inform the public discussion again at some point in time in the future. And Matt, you wrote in your in your piece using uh, education as almost like a positive example, talking about COVID, how different states have different, uh, uh, you know, different had different approaches to the way they did COVID uh, in schools. Um, so do you, it seems like you kind of see education as still a success story in some ways in, in feder, in federalism, even, even with these challenges that, that we're talking about or. Yeah. And I think the, the example you mentioned, you know, no child left behind a lot of the policies that we saw in the early two thousands were definitely, you know, it was f- across the aisle of, of people kind of jumping in on board of, of not really going in and staying aligned with federalism. I think that's absolutely right. But I do think, you know, I don't think it's just the embers that are still alive. I, I'm actually a little more optimistic uh, that I think that there there really is energy and enthusiasm. Uh, and you see that. I think that and I, I mentioned in the article, I think the COVID era, uh, school lockdowns, the policies there, I think for me in speaking to someone about federalism, that's, you know, just a great example to say, hey, look, we were told at the start of this pandemic when we didn't know what was happening, you know, there was quick shutdowns at the very beginning. But then when, you know, fall, summer 2020 rolled around and states were able to say, all right, what's the responsible thing is we're balancing student interests and public health. And you had a lot of states say, no, absolutely not. We're going to continue to lock down kids. You know, states like California, you know, essentially saying we're doing remote instruction. This is you know, what we're going to have. And then others like Florida saying, no, look, we absolutely have to have the kids back in school. And, you know, I think the data, you know, bore out that said, look, these didn't end up turning into rampant COVID transmission hotspots, as was feared. You know, we had teachers unions coming out with guillotines and tombstones and fake obituaries, right, saying you can't possibly open the schools. This is Pandora's box. And then we actually saw examples that were successful. And so in my mind, you know, I think a lot of parents have been incredibly frustrated. We've seen now the data about how those shutdowns impacted kids' academics, their mental health, you know, obesity rates, all these things that essentially I think have made clear that the states that allowed kids to go to school were on the right track. And obviously, you know, allowing options for for families to to make choices. But I think to me that illustrates for your kind of man on the street of saying, hey, if it had just been, you know, if it's going to swing back and forth between the Trump administration and the Biden administration and your ability to go to school hinges upon that as opposed to, yeah, look, if California wants to do one thing in Arizona, another, I think that's something that people can understand and say, maybe it's good that we were able to compare those and say, yeah, all right, this wasn't a disaster. Let's open the schools in other states. So in other words, uh, our recent experience with, with these challenges might be uh, an avenue to push the conversation further about about federalism and maybe re reassessing it in other avenues as well. Yeah, I mean, and that's why I try to talk about it again. Bob's absolutely right that we need to respect it as a constitutional principle. But for, you know, a person who's never heard the term or not since, right, you know, grade right. school federalism, I think it's important to start kind of on on that level of saying, all right, well, why is this significant other than just purely on the political issue of, well, it's in the Constitution, but also how do you then persuade people that this is a, an intrinsic good and not just something they have to live with because it's in the Constitution? Right. What about, what's your stance on on the role the Department of Education uh, is is playing now? Um, brought, just brought up a little bit earlier, and I, me personally, as a, you know, as a teacher, I, we, and we had a, um, but kind of a butting of heads and a, and a problem with this in Arizona because we were trying to put in a, a menu of assessments. We tr- we were trying to have different ways that we were gonna gonna assess 
And, and I know of, of, you know, different types of curriculums that have good assessment tools in it, but because of the, um, you know, was the no child left behind. Now it's the every student secedes uh, act uh, and has right requirements for standardized testing. Our hands are kind of tied there uh, be, because of those, um, because of those national uh, requirements. So, so what is, you just, I'm just curious, what, what, what's your perspective on, on the role the U United States Department of Education plays uh, in, in schools today? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we see a lot of cases where it leads to sort of good intentions gone wrong. And so, again, all these policies are, are for the most part, they're going to be written in a way, well, this is going to improve student outcomes. This is, you know, to ensure positive achievement. And yet then we see actual teachers on the ground saying, now I'm, I've got all these burdens and regulations that I have to try and deal with. And so I think that there's a, a sense that everybody wants to be the one to come in and save the world, and they want to do it on a, on a global or a national scale. And so they push a policy and say, here's now what it is. Well, that, at the end of the day, means now you've saddled teachers with additional reporting requirements that isn't something that can be adjusted at the local or the state level, right? And so now those things get locked in. And even when state legislators in Arizona say, hey, maybe it would be good if we made this more flexible about offering a menu of assessments and then it starts to conflict with federal law, which is obviously much harder to move. Uh, you know, it's not nimble, it's not responsive. Right. Um, I think that that in itself is, is problematic. So the Department of Education, I mean, there are things like, you know, National Center for Education Statistics within the department that offer useful information, right? So that you can actually then compare some of that data as a sort of clearinghouse, right? That That's a function that obviously helps policymakers look at it. When it comes to DC handing down those policies, um, you know, we saw this from the Biden administration recently in terms of curriculum, where they were proposing to condition grants in education based on schools prioritizing things like the 1619 Project and Ibram Kendi, who explicitly calls for racial discrimination. And I think that's a great example of maybe it's better that we not have them coming in and, and trying to dictate that this is how the schools should be operated and what they should be teaching. And it seems like there's also a strain of big government uh, on, on the Republican side, I mean, it seems like some, some of the response um, on the Republican side to uh, what the left is bringing up is like, well, maybe we need to bring up the, you know, teach full on pa patriotism uh, from the top down. Like that's it seems like the, the spirit of uh, Goldwater conservatism or Reagan's conservatism, is that still around in today's Republican Party? It certainly is a minority voice uh, in the uh, Republican Party, uh, and it's uh, even becoming uh, less prominent in the think tanks, which were always where uh, the intellectual ferment in uh, conservative circles uh, occurred. I mean, if, if you look at, and this is among the reasons why I'm pessimistic. If you look at what the Republican reform is uh, for a heavy-handed uh, federal uh, control of activity, it is to keep collecting all the money at the federal level, uh, subvent it back to the states, but with fewer strings attached. Uh, I mean, how many times have we heard the proposal to block grant Medicaid or other uh, forms of uh, uh, federal um, social welfare spending. Uh, well, that's not federalism. Uh, that's, that's just federal control with fewer <laughs> strings attached. Uh, 
Uh, it's not a sorting out of the responsibilities. I mean, when you look at state government, uh, to a very large extent, the states, rather than being sovereign entities, are now administrative arms of the federal government. Uh, Arizona state government spends uh, roughly an equivalent amount of money uh, that it gets from the federal government through various federal programs as to compared to what it raises from state and local sources. Uh, and uh, that's not federalism. Uh, so I, I do believe that uh, there was a serious historical opportunity lost in the 1980s uh, and to a large extent closed uh, by the George W. Bush administration. And I'm not seeing the kind of energy uh, behind true federalism as opposed to keeping your hand out, getting the money, just having greater freedom as to how you get to spend it. I mean, Republican mayors, not a lot of them exist, but <laughs> Republican mayors do exist, uh, were all in favor of, of the American Rescue Act and are all in favor of Build Back Better um, because it gives them all sorts of money that they can spend without having to raise it and be politically accountable for, for raising it. Yeah, that's a great point. And speaking of federal, uh, state, state and local government as being, as we've already brought up, more nimble, more responsive um, on, on things that, that matter to the people uh, in the local communities. But with infrastructure, with, with, with education, like you said, there's a lot of money. To, to come in there. So if people wanted to care about federalism more, who do we hold accountable for that? I mean, is it is it the the Senate is it the US senators and, and House members that are that should say no to this? Should we as as the state of Arizona say, you know what, we want to we want to do this menu of assessments. Let's just say no to all this uh, money coming from the federal government. I mean that seems like it's impossible politically. So who who ultimately is responsible for for um, protecting fe American federalism. Yeah, I mean, I think that, <clears throat> you know, not to make this a sort of cop-out answer, but, you know, <laughs> at multiple levels, right, you, it's not, I don't think that there's one constituency that says these are the people that are going to write in and save the day. I do think it is both federal actors, right? So it's it's folks who are in the White House, in Congress, to actually say we're going to pass policy that maybe, and, you know, to Bob's point, it's not just a, all right, it's a federalism light block grant type of thing, and we'll write fewer strings into the law. And, you know, I think that the COVID um, kind of bailout money we, we've seen it is the example of, of what's wrong with this, where the schools now have, in many cases, you see stories of they're spending it on stadium, right? These, there was no uh, match between here's what the actual need is and we're going to spend, right, right? right? It's just a let's just make it rain with, with bailout money, most of this isn't going to be for actually, you know, the estimates were something like 40% of the funds are going to go to anything plausibly COVID-related for right. K-12 schools. And so obviously that was a failure at the federal level, right, the, the, the passage of that kind of policy. And obviously it makes it that much harder to ship away at it in the future. But I think it does require that the folks who have those policy levers in Washington to say, all right, we're going to, you know, pass legislation that, that doesn't do this. Obviously at the state level and on different uh, areas of, of, you know, health, et cetera. There have been states to say, all right, we're not going to participate in this, uh, you know, sort of 
quasi carrot approach that basically the federal government says, well, you get all this matching funds, and if you don't do what we want, we're you know you're losing out on on millions of dollars. Obviously, that's a lot of economic and political pressure. They can stand up to it. Obviously, there's you know there is that pressure, and so I think in that sense, it does require leadership from Washington, you know, to basically say this is, and obviously when someone's in power, they want to use those those levers. And I think that it requires, you know, the sort of statesmanship that we saw, you know, going way back in American history to, to have responsible stewardship of that. At, at the federal level, I think the best that we could uh, practically, pragmatically hope for is just stop doing more of it. So that that would be a giant gain. I do believe that there's room for states to look for opportunities to emancipate themselves. And uh, interestingly, education is one of the uh, prime candidates for that because the federal government actually provides very little of the funding um, for uh, K-12 education. Uh, I once did a back-of-the-envelope calculation of what it would cost in terms of an increase in the sales tax. Uh, in order to replace federal funds and declare ourselves free of all that control. Uh, And I forget exactly what the figure was, but it wasn't one that I looked at and said, you know, that's politically implausible. It it was politically plausible. Now, when you get to things like transportation, um, the monies are so large uh, that it probably is impractical uh, to expect local politicians to declare uh, their emancipation. You get to something like Medicaid, where the federal government is picking up two-thirds to 90% of the cost, um, then uh, the lure is almost impossible to overcome. But uh, that would be something if you had some innovative uh, and very brave uh, <laughs> Republican uh, governors to lead to emancipation on education. That might be one place uh, where you could pull it off and that it would, from a financial standpoint, um, be not outside the realm of political possibility. What about just a few uh, quick follow-ups and, 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 and examples uh, before we wrap it up here? But so, so that would be an example of the states emancipating from the, from the federal government. What about, I mean, what about, so like, Education is a textbook example that I use with my students because it is definitely not in the Constitution about running schools. So that should be a textbook case, the Tenth Amendment of okay, that's a that's a state or, or local responsibility. But now it's you know policies have built up, national laws have been built up, the Department of Education exists. Uh, is it is there any feasible or is anyone even advocating for? abolishing the Department of Education, just entirely eliminating the role of the national government? Are we way beyond that? Um, and and it's, it, is, that a, is that a reform that's even, besides Rick Perry back in the day, I think he was advocating <laughs> for that, but. <laughs> I, I think we've lost that opportunity, and I, I think it was closed out during the George W. Bush administration. Up to that point in time, Abolishing the Department of Education was a standard Republican talking point. Every candidate for everything um, said that they were in favor of abolishing the Department of Education and giving state uh, government and local school districts complete control over that. Um, I'm sure that there are some Republicans that are still saying that, but it certainly uh, isn't the political talking point um, that it was 
going back uh, before the turn of the century. Yeah, and I guess I would say I feel like a lot of the the emphasis, and I would say you know rightly so right now for education policy is trying to to focus not on a sort of symbolic victory one way or the other, but to say, look, again, we've seen during the pandemic, what we need is flexibility in the system, right? And so it is providing things like school choice, whether that's through private ESA, education savings account type of opportunities, charter schools, this sort of thing. You know, we're hearing the fund students, not systems. All of these, I feel like, are kind of the rallying cry of, of folks, especially right of center, to say, ultimately what what is most important is providing an option for families have that power to do it and obviously different states you know Arizona has been a leader for several decades now in school choice again you know essentially the largest charter network um, as a percentage of state enrollments uh, in, in the country first to have ESAs so this sort of thing I think that we are actually seeing a lot of movement that is in the opposite direction from where we were during the George W Bush years of kind of standardization, and I think it actually lends itself to more flexibility. And obviously, they're, they're you know, I, I, again, as an optimist, I think <laughs> that there there is a chance to say, well, even though things may have been moving in one direction for 10 or 15 years, um, that I think there is a growing uh, frustration with kind of the status quo of education. And I think seeing that devolve from centralized government to more grassroots, on-the-ground, parent-led type of policy, I think kind of is a natural transition for people to say, all right, let's bring this back to the states to open this up for families to make decisions about their kids. So maybe the, maybe the big changes are downstream from just how people start to think about themselves in terms of education and how the local politics and the state politics plays out, plays out from there. Um, well, let's, let's, uh, let's wrap it up there. Any, any closing any closing thoughts, big picture thoughts, maybe about messaging strategies or any, anything else that, that didn't come up that you guys thought was, was important? Federalism makes sense. Um, it, it, it makes no sense to collect money nationally, send it to Washington, and have a group of bureaucrats decide how much of it gets back to what state for what projects. Uh, it makes sense in terms of political accountability. Um, it is an argument, a point of view that I think largely has been abandoned uh, without uh, reason or justification, uh, because it does make sense, uh, and it works, and it provides better governance. And I think Matt has a great insight uh, about it being a way in which a diverse uh, society can be less at each other's throats. Um, so uh, while I'm pessimistic. Uh, I think it's a winning argument, and I hope that Matt's optimism uh, prevails. Matt, final thoughts or anything? You know, I think that's a great note to end on. I don't want <laughs> to detract from that, but no, I think he's, he's absolutely right. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, uh, for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. You can find us on any podcasting app, uh, iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, SoundCloud, anywhere you listen to podcast. Thank you.